Thanks for those opening comments, Larry. It is great to be podcasting here at Covenant Key FM. Thank you, Larry and Jen, for letting me teach on this network. This is great. Really appreciate it. I want all of our listeners to know that there is a PDF lesson outline available for this podcast. There's always some extra information and sources listed in it, which we do not always cover here in the podcast. So most listeners have found it very helpful to get that podcast and open it in front of them as they listen. Any sources for more information which are mentioned here on the podcast are also listed in that lesson outline so that you don't have to write them down as you listen. Uh, Simply get the PDF and you're all set. And it's not posted on the Covenant Key website, uh, but I'll be glad to send you a copy of it simply by emailing me and requesting it. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Well, before we begin, why don't we ask God to be with us as we study together here. Great God of the universe, who alone possesses immortality, dwelling in glory and unapproachable light, high above everything in the heavens and earth and under the earth, we humble ourselves before you and confess our utter sinfulness and spiritual poverty and our desperate need for your mercy and grace. Help us in these studies of your first century church to see how they lived sensibly, righteously, and godly in the midst of that crooked and perverse generation so that we can apply those truths to our lives in such a way that we not only live godly lives in the godless world around us but also teach others and build your kingdom so that many will be blessed and bring glory and honor to you and your Son. To him who redeemed us with his blood, it is in his name, his glorious and alone worthy name, that we pray. Amen. Well, before we get into our review of first century history, I want to talk a little bit about why God has arranged for us to enjoy four more years of the Obama presidency. There is no doubt that God allowed this to happen. The question is why. It seems clear to me that we Americans are still not awake yet. We have not learned our lesson from the first four years of Obama. We have not really repented. We have not disciplined ourselves to do what is right. We were hoping the politicians would fix the problem without us having to lift a finger so we can go back to sleep in our comfortable lifestyles and ignore our spiritual poverty. God clearly has a different idea about how we should live our lives. He is pushing us toward repentance and learning discipline. God does not bless worldly, half-hearted, lukewarm, pleasure-seeking, fleshly-oriented, materialistic, self-gratifying, and selfishly ambitious, spoiled, rotten whiners like us. We are fake Christians. The rest of the world can see through our hypocrisy and spiritual nakedness. There are no shortcuts to regaining God's blessings on this country. We will have to confess our sins, ask for God's forgiveness, turn back to God in a huge way, and then convert our fellow Americans back to Christianity 
and teach our children and grandchildren the ways of righteousness. After all, Proverbs 14.34 says, It is righteousness that exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people. This nation is no longer a righteous nation. We have failed to study God's Word and to know His truth so that we could faithfully teach our children and grandchildren. As a result, we along with our children and grandchildren have become a godless nation. The highway to God's blessings goes through the valley of grieving over our sinfulness with deep, sincere, and life-changing repentance. And there's a number of texts, and I'm not going to list all of them or quote them here, but uh, if you get the PDF outline, you'll have all these texts from the Old Testament prophets where Israel was told to do this very same thing and warned that if they did not do them, that they would be destroyed. And they did not uh, do what God advised them to do, and as a result, they were destroyed in 586 B.C. This grieving over our sinfulness and our deep and sincere life-changing repentance uh, is described for us in Second Chronicles 7, verse 13 and 14, where uh, the writer there in the Chronicles says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways... Then God will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin and heal our land. And that is the kind of thing that we need here today. We Americans are going to have to come to grips with this idea of repentance and grieving over our sinfulness. Humble ourselves and pray and seek His face, study His word, learn the truth, and turn from our wicked ways then our nation will be healed, then our families will be healed, then our own lives will be healed. There is no alternative and no escape. We're going through the same cycle of history that the nation Israel went through. God sent the prophets to preach repentance to the people before he brought judgment and destruction. Sometimes they listened and repented, but most of the time they did not repent until after their country was totally wiped out and they were sent into slavery and captivity in a foreign land. Is that what it's going to take before we repent and turn back to God? Hopefully not. Let each of us determine to humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. And God will do the rest of the things that He says He will do. He will hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. Well, I'm sorry for getting my own, on my soapbox a little bit here, but all of us, including myself, need to keep reminding ourselves of these things. I love America, and I do not want to see our children and grandchildren have to suffer because of our own sins and neglect. One of the reasons we study history like this here in this podcast is so that we can learn the lessons of the past. We need to know our history so that we can avoid making the mistakes that the people in the Bible made and instead live righteously and godly in the world around us 
and make a difference for Christ like the first century church did. Well, last time we briefly reviewed some of the major events that were occurring while Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome, AD 61 to 63. We noted that the persecution was heating up at this time, and the earthquakes, famines, and natural disasters were more frequent and intense. James was killed. John was sent into exile on Patmos at this very time. Furthermore, we noted that at least 16 of the 27 New Testament books were written in these four short years from AD 61 to 64. If we include the book of Acts, which I believe we should, it would make 17 of the New Testament books written at this very time. And that's a quite a substantial amount of our New Testament in just four short years. Uh, with, perse- with the persecution heating up and the apostles either in prison, in exile, or being killed, it's no wonder that the writing activity of the apostles was in high gear. The persecution was destabilizing the churches. Many were falling away. The apostles were writing letters to minimize the damage and prepare them for the worst, which was an ironic persecution, which was just about to begin in AD 64. The pressure on the apostles was enormous. They were working feverishly to encourage the saints to persevere and remain alive until the soon coming parousia. Last time we also looked at the life and work of Barnabas and Mark. We noted that Barnabas probably wrote his epistle about the time Paul was in prison in Caesarea, uh, 58 to 60 AD. The epistle of Barnabas was very critical of the Jews and probably provoked the Jews, at least the ones there in Cyprus where Barnabas was, uh, probably provoked them to hunt him down and kill him. Uh, We shared some of the traditions about Barnabas and showed how the biblical data harmonizes well with those traditions, giving us a reasonably good date for the death of Barnabas. Uh, and We need to pick up where we left off in our previous discussion uh, with uh, Philemon, verse 24. Uh, keep in mind that we're talking about events that occurred at the time Paul was in prison in Rome, A.D. 61 to 63. This is just before the Neuronic persecution broke out in 64, and not long before the Jewish war with Rome began in 66. We are getting close to the end. Things are heating up and moving very rapidly toward the climax of the age. According to tradition, when Barnabas was about to be killed by the Jews, he instructed Mark to join forces with Paul after his death. We noticed how the biblical facts seemed to validate that tradition. Barnabas and Mark disappeared from the historical narrative in Acts after they left Antioch to do mission work on the island of Cyprus in AD 49 and 50. Barnabas reappears in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians. Galatians was written in 50 or 51 AD and 1 Corinthians was written in 57 AD. In both of those books, Galatians and 1 Corinthians, it appears that uh, Barnabas was still alive at the time those books were written. However, in the book of Acts, where he's mentioned in in chapter 11, verse 24, Barnabas is eulogized as if he was already dead 
by the time Acts was written. And of course, Acts was written, I believe, uh, somewhere around AD 60, 61, or 62. Uh, so shortly after that, Paul mentions Mark being with him in Rome uh, in AD 62. If the tradition about Barnabas uh, telling Mark to go join forces with, with Paul is true, as it seems to be, that would mean that Barnabas died about the time Paul reached Rome or shortly afterwards. Mark then joined forces with Paul soon after Paul reached Rome, implying that Barnabas had died not long before that. So I think that's the most easy uh, way to calculate the dates for all this is using those traditions to see if they are in harmony with the biblical data, and they are. And if so, then we can uh, derive a date from those traditions as they harmonize with the biblical text. So in this session, I want to look a little bit more closely at those biblical texts which support the chronology uh, for Barnabas and Mark that we have looked at already. Uh, there's a few mentions of Mark, of course, in the latter epistles of Paul, and it's these biblical statements about Mark which I think provide the best evidence of when Barnabas might have died. The book of Acts does not mention either Barnabas or Mark after chapter 15. Both of them disappear together after Barnabas took Mark to Cyprus, Acts 15, verse 39. When Mark does reappear in the epistles of Paul and Peter is without any mention of association with Barnabas, implying that Barnabas was already dead. That supports the tradition which says that just before Barnabas died, he instructed Mark to go to Paul and join with him in his missionary efforts. Barnabas is mentioned 24 times in the book of Acts, plus four more times in two of Paul's epistles, and then uh, the three mentions of Barnabas in Galatians was written in about AD 51, 50, maybe 50, as early as 50, or 51, while 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6 was written about six years later in AD 57. And of course, the last mention of, of Barnabas is in the book of Acts, and we noticed it last time and this time as well that Acts 11:24 seems to eulogize Barnabas as if he was already dead before Luke wrote the book of Acts. Notice in Acts 11:24 it says, For Barnabas was a good man, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now notice it says that he was, that he was past tense, a good man. It doesn't say is a good man as if he was still alive. It says he was a good man. The past tense there uh, implies that he's no longer around. And it's making a value judgment or a moral judgment on the life of Barnabas. It's, it's uh, judging his life as being a good man. There's a moral judgment or value judgment there. It would be very difficult to believe that Luke would have said this in this way about Barnabas if he was still alive. This is uh, not only a value judgment and a past tense uh, statement, it's a eulogistic language. Uh, 
Uh, it's the kind of language we use about somebody if they're passed on and we're talking about how good of a person they were and giving a eulogy for their life. Luke evidently wrote the book of Acts after they reached Rome in early, six, early uh, AD 61. Luke implies that Barnabas was already dead before he wrote the book of Acts. And as we noted last time, Barnabas was still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in AD 57. So somewhere between AD 57 and AD 61, Barnabas must have been killed by the Jews on Cyprus. So that gives us a beginning point and an ending point for the range of dates for the, uh, the death of Barnabas. He died somewhere between 57 and 61 AD. Now I'm going to tend to put him at the very uh, upper end of that, around 60 or 61, uh, and we'll see the reasoning for that as we uh, look at some of these other biblical texts. Uh, last time we looked at some of the statements about Mark in two of Paul's prison epistles, Colossians and Philemon, uh, which helped us pinpoint, I believe, the date of Barnabas' death to AD 60 or 61. We noticed that from AD 62 onwards, Mark was connected with Paul and Peter, with no mention of Barnabas. The tradition which says that Barnabas died and gave instructions for Mark to join up with Paul seems to harmonize very well with the biblical narrative in Colossians 4 verse 10 and Philemon 24. We were dealing with Philemon 24 at the end of our last session, so I want to pick up there uh, in our discussion here. In Philemon 24, he's uh, giving his greetings to uh, Philemon, who was one of the members of the church in Colossae, where Paul was planning to come fairly soon after his release from prison in Rome. And he's giving not only his own greetings to Philemon, but he's mentioning the greetings of Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and his fellow workers who were with Paul right there in Rome uh, while he was writing this letter to Philemon. So Mark is mentioned as one of the people who was with Paul at the time he wrote to Philemon. And it's interesting that uh, we noticed in Colossians uh, earlier that uh, Colossians 4 verse 10 that uh, Mark was present with Paul in Rome when he wrote Colossians which was in 62 AD and here he is still with Paul when Paul wrote Philemon in 63 AD so for at least a year or more Mark has been in Rome with Paul uh, and that brings up some interesting speculations about what he was doing with Paul there in Rome uh, in regard to maybe writing some books or pr providing scribal service or courier service for Paul. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we get to some of Paul's books uh, uh, that he wrote uh, later on down the road. This extended presence of Mark with Paul in Rome would allow for Paul to have written the book of Hebrews in response to the epistle of Barnabas, which Mark probably brought with him when he came to Paul in Rome. 
According to tradition, Barnabas had a copy of Matthew's Gospel with him. And we don't know when Mark wrote his Gospel, but it could have been while he was on Cyprus with Barnabas, or even afterwards. Uh, so we don't know for sure, but but that explains why Mark's Gospel has a lot of connections with Matthew's Gospel. If in fact the tradition is true that Barnabas had a copy of Matthew's Gospel with him, which Mark would have had access to since he was right there on Cyprus with Barnabas. Okay, um, in First uh, Peter five verse thirteen, Peter mentions uh, Mark as well being with him in sixty three A.D. Uh, soon after. Evidently, Paul had been released from prison. Uh, then Mark probably took off back to Jerusalem at that point and did not go with Paul on his missionary tour back to Colossae. And so here in 1 Peter 5.13, we find Peter uh, talking about Mark being present with him. Uh, for some reason, Mark left Paul and traveled to Judea to be with Peter, evidently after Paul was released. And it was probably courier service that Mark was performing on the behalf of Paul and Peter. Mark could have brought the book of Revelation with him to Paul, as, as well as any of Paul's prison epistles that he wrote while he was in prison. And could very well have uh, brought the book of Hebrews as well, and maybe even a copy of the epistle of Barnabas. And he, Mark would have been able to take all that material to Peter uh, when he went to Jerusalem to see Peter. And that may explain what Mark was doing all that time uh, for a year or more, while he was in Rome with Paul. He may have been copying, making copies of all those documents uh, that he could take with him back to Jerusalem and give to Peter. And he would have been doing that, of course, at both Paul and Peter's request in service to them so that Paul makes sure uh, Peter has a copy of all the stuff that he's writing Okay, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it mentions Mark as well. Now, this is after Paul had been arrested his second time in the Neronic persecution of AD 64. We see Mark mentioned in uh, that letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. And this is outside the scope of our study right now at this time because we're still dealing, dealing with uh, events in 62 AD. So we will we'll probably not uh, say much more about that until we get to 64 AD. But uh, this mention of Mark in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11 shows that, that Mark was somewhere close to Ephesus or in one of the cities which Timothy would have to pass through on his way to see Paul in prison. Notice in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, it says, Only Luke is with me, and he's saying this to Timothy, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. 
So evidently Mark was somewhere close to Ephesus where Timothy was. And uh, Timothy would pick him up on his way th- to see Paul in prison, wherever Paul was at that point, uh, after he'd been arrested in the Neuronic persecution in AD 64. Paul is most likely using Mark for scribal and courier services, uh, keeping in mind that Paul had a collection of books and parchments which Timothy would have have uh, brought with him when he brought Mark, it seems most likely that Paul intended to place his collection of writings in the care of Timothy and Mark, just like Barnabas had done at his death, uh, entrusting all of his books and writings uh, to Mark as well. So uh, it seems like Mark had uh, won the uh, favor of Paul and had proved himself to be very useful in the scribal and courier uh, services uh, that Paul very desperately needed. So uh, that would make a lot of good sense out of what Mark is doing for Paul. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about why I favor the pre-70 date for the Epistle of Barnabas. And this would mean that it's probably in the range of uh, 57 to 59 A.D. That's when I would think that it was most likely written. And why do I place it in that range of dates, 57 to 59? Most patristic scholars believe Barnabas died about a decade before 70 A.D., which would be around 60 A.D. That's about where I put him, maybe 60 or 61. But they reject the idea of Barnabas' authorship of this epistle. And the reason they do is because uh, they believe chapter 16 of the epistle of Barnabas is talking about the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem as a past event. Therefore, they think the book had to be written after 70 AD since it mentions 70 AD as a past event. And since Barnabas died before 70 A.D., and the book was written after 70 A.D., that means that Barnabas could not have been the writer for this epistle, because he was not around. He had died before 70 A.D. Now, that's the approach that most, in fact, I think all scholars uh, today, at least modern days, uh, would take in regard to the, the authorship and date of the epistle of Barnabas. But that approach, I believe, ignores some very important details in the in the epistle of Barnabas itself, internal details. And this has apparently been ignored by every patristic scholar of the past. And I don't say that lightly, uh, and I'm not saying it proudly. Uh, it's simply... Uh, the fact of the matter, and I'll I'll explain why. For instance, some some destruction of Jerusalem is definitely mentioned in chapter 16. There's no doubt about that. And all futurist patristic scholars think it's referring to AD 70. However, in the context, and I, man, I have marked this up and analyzed it and chopped it up and spit it out, what I've noticed, 
that in the context of chapter 16, going all the way back to chapter 13, uh, Barnabas quotes several texts from the Old Testament which are talking about the condition of the Jews at the time of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians in AD, I'm sorry, uh, BC uh, 586. Now, this implies that the past destruction mentioned by Barnabas here in chapter 16 was not AD 70, but rather the 586 BC destruction. Now, why do I say that? Well, because all these texts that Barnabas quotes about the Jews being wicked and destined to be destroyed are referring to the Jews in Isaiah's day before the first temple, the temple of Solomon, was destroyed. And so, if that's the case, in chapter 16 when he says, those people didn't repent, therefore they, their temple was destroyed, what does that tell you? It's not talking about 70 AD. It's talking about the 586 BC destruction. And this is going to be how I'm arguing my case for the pre-70 date of Barnabas in my master's thesis. I'm showing from the context of chapters 13 through 16 that Barnabas is referring to the generation of Isaiah's day who failed to repent and as a result were destroyed in 586 B.C. He is not referring to the AD 70 destruction as a past event. He's referring to 586 B.C. destruction as a past event. This approach not only allows us to redate the epistle of Barnabas before A.D. 70, but it also reestablishes the authorship of Barnabas for the, for the epistle as well. Now this is going to be a bombshell in the field of patristic studies. If I'm successful in establishing this uh, 586 B.C. destruction as what chapter 16 is talking about, then the issues of authorship and date for the epistle will have to be reconsidered by patristic scholars, especially those in the futurist establishment. And boy, I'm praying for that to happen. We preterists have nothing to lose and everything to gain if this uh, approach is correct. And I'm hoping it can be established in my master's thesis. That's what I'm working on, doing my research on, and uh, hoping that we can establish this uh, 586 B.C. destruction as the reference there in chapter 16. Well, I submitted my abstract idea for my thesis to a couple of world-class patristic scholars. Uh, one is Dr. Carlton Paget, who's a scholar in Cambridge, England, and Dr. Michael W. Holmes, who's the guy who uh, translated the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, the, the third edition is out now, and uh, he's the guy that put, put all that together and checked all the translation did a good job. I mean, he's a world-class patristic scholar. And when I submitted my argument 
interpretation on this to both of those guys, they verified that it is, in fact, a unique approach. They said to me in their email, as far as they know, no other patristic scholar has taken this approach or noticed that problem in chapter 16, like I have mentioned. And they encouraged me to pursue this and see how far I can go with it. So that's what I'm doing with my master's thesis. Uh, it's entitled Redating the Epistle of Barnabas. And when a supervisor for my thesis, uh, Dr. Harris, uh, down in Lubbock, Texas, uh, when he heard what Paget and Holmes had to say about my thesis idea, he instantly gave me the green light for my thesis. Uh, I, he probably would have uh, given me a little bit of a rough time if I hadn't had a couple of well-known patristic scholars there urging me to take this and run with it. So I got the green light to do my thesis on the redating of the Epistle of Barnabas. By the way, if any of you would like to have a copy of the Epistle of Barnabas in PDF format so that you can read it and study it along with me, uh, simply email me and request it and I'll send that PDF to you. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Now, one of the traditions about the death of Barnabas suggests that Mark quickly connected with Paul while he was still in Ephesus on his third missionary journey in A.D. 57. That was before Paul went to Jerusalem and was arrested in A.D. 58. Now, I'm not sure that tradition is correct. Uh, and here's why. Uh, even though the book of Acts does not mention Paul's connection with Mark in Ephesus, it is certainly possible and would explain how the bulk of Acts, chapters 1 through 20, including the Acts 11.24 eulogy of Barnabas, uh, could have been written as early as A.D. 58 to 60, while Paul was in prison at Caesarea. However, since the last eight chapters of Acts cover events from A.D. 58 to 61, it implies that chapters 21 through 28, at least, if not the whole book of Acts, were written after Luke and Paul reached Rome in AD 61. Add to that the mention in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 of Mark being back in Paul's association in AD 62, and we have a clear end point, before which time Barnabas must have died in order to be eulogized in Acts 11.24, as well as for Mark to be reunited with Paul in Rome. So, uh, in Colossians 4, verse 10, as we noticed, uh, uh, gives us even better in information about when Barnabas might have died. We know it's in the range between 57 and 61, uh, and we can tighten that up a little bit more by looking at some of the other references to Barnabas and Mark in our New Testament. And when we look at those references, uh, we notice that we hear no more about Mark after he went to Cyprus with Barnabas in AD 50, until about ten years later, when both Paul and Peter begin mentioning him again. 
According to tradition, Mark stayed connected with Barnabas and worked with him on the island of Cyprus until Barnabas was killed. Just before his death, tradition says Barnabas instructed Mark to join up with Paul after his death. Since we see Paul start mentioning Mark again in his prison epistles and post-prison epistles in AD 62-64, that is a good indication that Barnabas was dead and that Mark had indeed joined up with Paul just as Barnabas had requested. The reunion was apparent in 62 AD, but not before that. So, if we depend exclusively on the biblical evidence, it would appear that Barnabas was killed by the Jews on Cyprus in about AD 60 or 61, shortly before Mark shows up in Rome with Paul. Evidently, Barnabas spent most of his time on Cyprus after he split with Paul in 50 AD, with the exception of some brief mission trips to Corinth and other places at some point before his death in AD 60-61. Paul, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, written from Ephesus in AD 57, mentions Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6, as a traveling missionary still doing uh, missionary work and evangelistic work, and imply, implies that Barnabas had either visited Corinth or had at some point uh, some kind of a contact with them. They knew who Barnabas was and how he was currently doing his mission work, and Paul shows no hint of being aware of Barnabas' death at that time. All the tenses of the verb there are present tense. There's no past tense uh, there about Barnabas at all, as we see in the book of Acts 11.24, where it does use the past tense and make a uh, moral judgment about the life of Barnabas. So, this tradition, uh, which puts the death of uh, Barnabas in AD 57, simply does not fit the the data about Mark not connecting with Paul until AD 61. Is that connection with with, uh, Paul in AD 61 or 62, which uh, proves that Barnabas could not have died in 57, because that would have meant there would have been a three or four, maybe close to five years of association with Paul uh, before 61 or 62 when Paul mentions him. And that would really make Paul's statements to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 10, uh, difficult to understand uh, why he would need to give them instructions about Mark since they had already known about him uh, being associated with Paul for over four years. Uh, So, surely if Barnabas died in 57 AD, we would have expected to see Mark show up in the historical narrative of the book of Acts, or in one of Paul's other epistles that were written shortly after Barnabas had died in 57 AD, if in fact he did die at that time. If Mark joined with Paul in Ephesus, then surely he would have traveled on to Corinth with Paul, where Paul wrote the book of Romans. Mark would have been mentioned at the end of Romans, where Paul refers to everybody that was traveling with him at the time. Mark is not in the list. 
which necessitates the conclusion that Mark had not joined with Paul yet. And that implies also that Barnabas had not died yet as well. So uh, that's some of the ways that we're trying to reason out the date of the death of Barnabas. This is the kind of approach that historical theologians use to reconstruct the chronology of various people's lives and when the books of our New Testament were written. They use the same approach of looking at all these references to individuals, where they were, where they were traveling to, where they were coming from, where they were staying at the time, etc. The chronology of that will tell you lots of information if you carefully study it and reason between the lines. We noticed uh, in our study the last time that Paul's statements about Mark in Colossians 4.10, which was written in 62 A.D., imply a recent reunion with Mark and not something that had been in place for over four years. Colossians 4.10 implies that Barnabas had died recently, probably within the last year or less. This means that the eulogy in Acts could not have been written back in A.D. 58 to 60 when Paul was still in, in uh, Judea in prison in Caesarea uh, before he went to Rome. Uh, it implies that the book of Acts, which mentions Barnabas as being dead, uh, could not have been written until 61 AD or later after they reached Rome. The date of the book of Acts is therefore uh, very closely related to this whole scenario with Barnabas and Mark. Since Acts eulogizes Barnabas, it appears to have been written after Barnabas' death, and since there is no biblical evidence of Mark reuniting with Paul until Paul was in Rome in AD 61, it implies that Acts was not finished until after Paul arrived in Rome and Mark had come to him there with news of Barnabas' death. It is this re reconciliation with Paul and Barnabas uh, in AD 61 that fixes the date of Acts at AD 61-62, evidently written in Rome just before Paul's case went to trial in AD 63. If this is the case, then it implies something about the identity of Theophilus to whom the book of Acts was written. It suggests that Theophilus may have been a government official in Rome, not a high priest or former high priest back in Judea, as we suggested earlier in our studies, but instead uh, probably a government official in Rome, maybe even Paul's defense attorney, who was interested in Paul's case and needed to know the full history of, of Apostle Paul and his connection with Christianity and Judaism before he defended Paul in the trial before Nero Caesar in 63 AD. Barnabas had already written his epistle before his death in 60 or 61, so uh, Mark most likely took possession of all of his books and parchments, which included the epistle of Barnabas, and probably brought them with him when he came to Paul in Rome. This means that the Epistle of Barnabas was written first before Paul wrote 
the book of Hebrews. Now, you may wonder why in the world that's a big deal. Uh, but let me tell you uh, why that's such an important thing to point out. All the scholars out there in the patristic world uh, think that uh, the Epistle of Barnabas was written after 70 A.D. and that all the similarities between the Epistle of Barnabas and the book of Hebrews are because Barnabas was aware of the book of Hebrews and is referring to some of those same ideas in his epistle, but just distorting them and uh, making hash out of them. But do you think, honestly, that Barnabas would do such a thing? After traveling with Paul and working with him on missionary trips, do you think he would take the book of Hebrews and totally uh, annihilate Paul's arguments there and make hash out of them? I don't think so. I think it, the reverse is probably the better solution to that. Let me explain what I mean. When Mark brought the epistle of Barnabas with him to Rome in 61 AD, uh, this was before Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. That means that Paul would have had the epistle of Barnabas in hand and familiar with it when he wrote the book of Hebrews. So that means that the epistle of Barnabas came first, then the book of Hebrews, not the other way around, as most patristic scholars think. They've got it just backwards. Paul had the epistle of Barnabas in front of him as he wrote the book of Hebrews so that he could correct all of the harsh anti-Judaic rhetoric and overly allegorical interpretations in the epistle of Barnabas before he sent his book of Hebrews to all the same churches who had received the epistle of Barnabas. You see where I'm going with this? And this is going to be a bombshell, I tell you. If, if I wasn't doing enough damage with redating the epistle, uh, connecting Barnabas as the author of it uh, is going to do even more damage. I tell you, the patristic scholars are going to hate me uh, after I put this thesis out. But they've got it just backwards. Uh, all those Barnabas scholars who date Barnabas after AD 70, they're trying to find clear quotes and allusions in the epistle of Barnabas to the book of Hebrews. But they're laboring in vain. They're not there. And, it, and I've, as I've looked at all the different scholars who've talked about uh, the epistle of Barnabas, they scratch their heads wondering why the epistle of Barnabas is so similar to Hebrews yet it never quotes it. And never never really has any any phrases that are word for word verbatim coming from the book of Hebrews. And yet they think it was written after Hebrews. And they wonder why in the world Barnabas, who traveled with Paul and was familiar with all of his writings, 
and his teachings uh, why he does such a poor job of quoting the book of Hebrews. Well, they've got it all wrong. They've got it just backwards. Uh, They should instead be looking for allusions to and corrections of the epistle of Barnabas in the book of Hebrews. Instead of looking for quotes of Hebrews in the epistle of Barnabas. Now we'll talk more about the significance of this similarity between Barnabas and Hebrews when we discuss the book of Hebrews which was written by Paul at the end of his uh, imprisonment there in Rome in 63 AD. Uh, But you can see uh, where I'm headed with this. Uh, If Barnabas was written first, then it explains why the book of Hebrews is uh, following the logic and the arguments in the epistle of Barnabas and correcting all of the harsh anti-Judaic rhetoric and the overly allegorical interpretations and, and, and misinterpretations of the typology that Barnabas has in his book. Uh, the book of Hebrews corrects all that and states it in a, an inspired and correct way. Uh, and and uh, I think that's very easy to understand why Paul did what he did in the book of Hebrews if he had the epistle of Barnabas in front of him when he wrote Okay, Uh, well now you can see why I waited until we reached AD 62 in our studies here before dealing with the epistle of Barnabas and his martyrdom. It has a direct connection with Paul's epistle to Colossians uh, where he mentions Mark being with him in Rome and it has a direct connection to the book of Hebrews as well which we'll be getting into fairly soon. Uh, I want to look... Uh, real quickly at the epistle of Barnabas itself just a little bit more uh, before we uh, turn the page and go into some new studies here of other events. The epistle of Barnabas was therefore evidently written by Barnabas soon after he visited some churches. Uh, He mentions the fact that he had visited those churches recently. He's writing his epistle to them after he had visited them. And evidently these churches that he visited were either Hellenistic Jews or predominantly Gentiles uh, because they were obviously very open to his teaching, uh, which was a very strong anti-Jewish and allegorical perspective. Uh, So it would imply that they were Hellenistic Jews or predominantly Gentiles uh, who would have been receptive to that kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric. We do not know for sure where those churches were that he visited. Uh, Evidently they were not on Cyprus though because he wouldn't have needed to write a letter to them. He could have just visited them in person. So somewhere outside of Cyprus uh, he visited some churches and wrote a letter to them after he visited them. Various scholars have suggested Alexandria or Syria, or Turkey, as the location of those churches to whom he visited and wrote. Since Barnabas stayed pretty close to Cyprus most of the time, uh, there's no evidence in the book of Acts that he wandered very far away from Cyprus very often. Uh, It's more likely that the churches he visited were nearby in either Syria or Turkey. Uh, Alexandria doesn't seem to be a likely place he would have spent much time. Uh, 
and he wouldn't have taken a visit, visit down to Alexandria unless he was going to spend some significant time there. So uh, there's no evidence that he did, in fact, spend very much time there. But there is good evidence that he did travel to Turkey or to Syria. Uh, Turkey would be the more likely uh, place for him to have gone. And that's probably where I would tend to say that he's writing to some churches in nearby Turkey that he visited. The Epistle of Barnabas was not a Judaism-friendly book. You know, it's like a uh, user-friendly book. Uh, It it wasn't Judaism-friendly. It probably stirred up a lot of persecution against Barnabas and and even the other Christians. I don't think this was intentional on the part of Barnabas, however. Um, And it was definitely not what Paul was referring to uh, in AD 62 and 63 uh, in his epistles uh, of Philippians uh, 1 verse 17 where he says that there were some probably Judaizers in the context who were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, serving only to cause Paul more distress in his imprisonment. Uh, That was not Barnabas. Barnabas would not have intentionally and deliberately done anything or said anything to hurt his brother Paul. Uh, So, and besides that, he was probably already dead by the time Paul wrote the book of Philippians anyway. And so, Uh, this could not be Barnabas that Paul was referring to. But the book of Barnabas, or epistle of Barnabas, definitely did stir up some persecution. Uh, Unintentionally, but it did. And it was probably what caused the Jews there on Cyprus to hunt him down and kill him. uh, Because it had such a clear anti-Jewish tone to it. It would have provoked the Jews uh, to go after him. Well, they would have regarded Barnabas as guilty of the very thing of which Paul was falsely accused. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, they accused him of teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Acts chapter 21, verse 21. Now, even though Paul was not guilty of that, the suspicion of it almost got him killed in Jerusalem. This false accusation against Paul could have drawn its support from those who had heard Barnabas teach or who had read his epistle and assumed that Paul was teaching the same thing as Barnabas. And that would be an easy assumption for them to make since Paul and Barnabas had worked together for several years at Antioch and on a missionary trip together. So they're Assumption, uh, you know, does have some validity to it. However, Paul was not guilty of that. And as we see in the book of Hebrews, Paul corrected that assumption and showed that he was not guilty of that, which Barnabas definitely was. And so Barnabas and Paul differed on their approach to the Jewish people and whether or not they should continue keeping the law and circumcising their children. Evidently, Barnabas did not believe that was necessary. And uh, Paul 
believed it was necessary until all fulfilled all the law was fulfilled and uh, until the heaven and earth passed away just like Jesus had taught them in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20 that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until it's all fulfilled and heaven and earth passes away well the things that Barnabas wrote in this epistle would certainly have had a provocative effect upon the Jews in Cyprus. This would mean that the epistle could have been written before 58 when Paul was arrested. However, it's more likely that it was written not long before Barnabas was killed by the Jews, probably within the range of 58 to 59 after Paul had been arrested and was in prison in Caesarea. This would allow enough time for the epistle to provoke the Jews on Cyprus and cause them to kill him in AD 60 or 61. This would mean that it was written after Paul had been arrested and might explain some of the extreme anti-Judaistic polemic in Barnabas since Barnabas would have been upset about the arrest of Paul and would have been in been more critical of the Jews on Paul's behalf. No doubt the arrest of Paul would have disturbed Barnabas and could have uh, caused him to be more harsh in his criticism against the Jews that we find here in this epistle. Well, this has been a quick survey of the reasoning that I am following to arrive at a date for the death of Barnabas and the date of his epistle. Uh, it's a good introduction, I think, to some of the research that I'm doing for my master's thesis. And uh, we'll say more about all of this, I'm sure, when we get to AD 63, at the time the book of Hebrews was written. So I would urge you to, uh, to think about that, and uh, if you have any questions about that, didn't understand it, or want to know more, or want to challenge what you've heard, uh, I'm certainly all ears. I would love to interact with you on the date of Barnabas' death and the date of the Epistle of Barnabas. So if you have any questions or comments or, or concerns, uh, email me at preterist1 at preterist.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time.